Happy late New Year, listeners. My name is Mark. And I'm Rob. And welcome to this uh, episode of 42 to Doomsday, which isn't our final one, isn't that right, Rob? That's right, Mark. The stay of execution has come through from the Governor at literally 11.59, one minute to midnight. <laughs> so this is our second last episode, isn't it, Mark? Yes, that's right. But like a John Farnham retirement tour, it'll probably just keep going on for the end of the year. Just Google that, people. Google it. This was going to be our last episode. The January episode was going to be the last one, but we uh, we came across an opportunity too good to pass up. Uh, we've um, been able to interview Dave Hoskin, uh, who is writing as we speak, uh, Chasing Shadows, the story of Phil Morris, the Omni rumor, and its effect upon a subculture, i.e., you people. We've decided to push back our departure by one month. That's right, Mark. We're quitting in February now. <laughs> Until we find something else to talk about, we go. We're quitting in March, April. No, no, no. It's definitely February 2018. We're at the door, isn't that right, Mark? That's correct. As soon as our impeachment starts. <laughs> I'm just waiting to be interviewed by Robert Mueller on the way. <laughs> exactly. What did you know about Stephen Moffat and when did you know it? The opportunity to re-interview Dave Hoskin again came up and we've been planning to do so for a, a number of months and it just so happened that I was able to um, snag him uh, earlier in January. Uh, so what you're going to listen to uh, after we stop uh, rambling here is my interview with Dave. Mark isn't on the interview, it was just me. Uh, just a couple of uh, programming notes. You will hear some people in the background, some family members, uh, apologies for that, but that's just technology and and you know family life goes on while we're doing this nonsense. I certainly had a very good time uh, talking to Dave. He can he can talk for Australia basically. He's he's very eloquent and he, uh, look he uh, just judging by the uh, the interview and and certainly my conversations with him um, off mic, uh, he's put his uh, poured his heart and soul into the book and he's done a heap of research and just uh, waiting now to uh, see the final product. I'm quietly confident that. Uh, it will uh, answer a lot of questions that f- people who have been following the Omni Rumor for the last, really, since since Phil started uh, his search back in 2005, wasn't it, Mark? Yes, that's right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> 13 <laughs> years, almost. It's too long to wait. You know, five years would have been too long to wait back then. But anyway. So take it away, Rob and Dave. And we welcome Dave Hoskin back to the 42 to Doomsday podcast. Uh, Mark is absent for this particular portion of the podcast, do, doing whatever it is that Mark does when he's not here. Dave, to begin, uh, your previous interview with us became one of our most popular with almost 11,000 downloads since we last spoke with you. Just to lead off, before we touch on a couple of other things, what do you think people are so interested in Phil and his work? Geez, no pressure. 11,000. Really? Yeah. Do you think it's me or do you think it's Phil? It's pretty obviously Phil. Look, I think we did talk about this a little bit last time. And I, I remember the phrase that I used was like, Star Trek fans don't have this. Blake 7 fans don't have this. It's that that idea of an unhealed wound that Doctor Who fans have. Um, I was actually talking to Derek Handley. Um, he does the recons, which are fantastic, by the way. Like, I was actually watching the ones for Dalek's Master Plan. It's just this notion that Doctor Who fans abhor a vacuum, you know. We can't bear the fact that because of various, you know, perfectly logical reasons, there's a whole bunch of stuff back in the day that we can't watch anymore. But, you know, Phil obviously abhorred that vacuum more than anybody else. So he went and looked and we all sort of heard the rumblings and the the rumblings were just too good to be true. But then, you know, in October 2013, got that massive big whack of proof that, hang on, that this story could actually be true. Like I see just recently that people have been trying to walk the Omni rumour back, you know, that, you know, 90 out of, you know, what was 103, 106 
you know, yeah, they've been trying to sort of <laughs> tamp down that sort of expectation that they could possibly deliver on that, and that's understandable. But just when that many episodes came back at once, you know, that's an enormous indicator in the direction that something big had happened that, you know, they'd been sitting on it for a long time. Like, we're already... I think it's been admitted that they were sitting on it since at least 2011 and for various reasons didn't tell us until October 2013. So the fact that the story is still sort of untold, you know, there's that fascination there like so so why weren't we told and all the other sort of stories that we have, you know, or the recoveries that we have, we sort of pretty much know the whole story. But this one it's still kind of not and... Throughout the sort of Paul's various updates on the missing episodes forum, it was like, yeah, we will tell you the whole story when it's done. We'll tell you in, in pictures and video and we'll be very open and transparent about it. And indeed, back then, we were getting very regular updates and then it just stopped. And it's that sort of weird mystery about it that sort of has really piqued everybody's interest or a lot of people's interest anyway. I think it's mostly a subset of a subset of people that are really, you know, that interested. I mean... Shadows like us, really, Rob. But it's that plus a combination of, if you look at Phil's story the right way, it has a, a romance about it. The fact that he was kidnapped in a particular part of the world that's very dangerous, put himself back together, which is no mean feat, mentally, conquered his PTSD, and then went back to the place, the one place in the world that you desperately would not want to go to. Put all of those elements together. Even if you don't know everything about it, you're still there going, that's a great story. I think when you put all of that in the pot, that's why we're interested. To a subset of a subset, that's why we're fascinated. It's consumed uh, a number of years of your writing life. <laughs> Uh, and it, yes, and it's no secret that um, the book is 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 later than uh, it was anticipated. Um, what would you like to address that to the listeners? Yeah, I remember reading a Neil Gaiman comic back in the day, and he even addresses it in the fiction, and he says it's bigger than I thought. Uh, and I remember that comic being very late as well. And at the time, I didn't understand it. I do understand it now. Part of it's because two reasons. Uh, one is very personal, uh, particularly this year. I had what could be described as a bugger of a year. It was a terrible year. And that um, year is 2017, yeah? That year is 2017, yes. Which really meant that not a lot of writing actually got done. Now, I don't really want to say why, because ultimately it's not the reader's business. And at the end of the year, we actually sat down and we said, what should we do about this? Because the book is late. There's no two ways about it. And ultimately, when you're sort of dealing with your public... They're going, what do they deserve from us? They either deserve a book or they deserve their money back if they've pre-ordered it. And we thought, what's the most responsible thing to do? So we knew that there was a lot of pre-orders and we knew that there was a lot of interest in the book, which is very flattering. And ultimately what we decided to do, uh, we're aware of some other Doctor Who publishers, which I won't name, but we're aware that some other people, ultimately they just weren't delivering books and they were disappearing sometimes with uh, people's money. And we did not want uh, obverse books to get that kind of reputation. So we just thought, okay, best shot is to uh, for me to do the best book that I could possibly do because there's also been a lot of mission creep while I've been doing this book, partly because I got very interested in the story and it turned out to be, in Neil Gaiman's phrase, bigger than I thought. I thought it was just going to be a fairly small story and it would be a matter of 
doing the right interviews at the right time and that would be that but it turned out not to be and then life got in the way among other things i also thought like a lot of people that certain things would have been announced by now and there would have been a more concrete ending for the story too so there was that but i now i don't need that to happen either i know some things that mean i can end the book however I want to end it. So in terms of the readers, I thought, okay, I can deliver a book that I think they'll like, that can tell them things that they'll want to read, but I'm going to deliver it when it's possible to be delivered. But in the meantime, those people who have, you know, given their money in good faith, I don't want to string them along. I don't want to say it's going to be due when saying dates and then life getting in the way. So that's why we made the decision to uh, refund everybody's money because we didn't want to be in that sort of situation anymore. That was that mission creep that I was sort of talking about. Uh, the more I looked into the missing episode story, the more I got interested in it, uh, the more you realise it's a fascinating subject. And, yeah, it it did sort of, you know, my life. Uh, the more people you talk to. I mean, look, Stu's been a very good editor as well. He sort of said, okay, uh, you could literally go on forever researching this. You need to write this now. Aside from the mission creep, the the problems uh, that you mentioned, is your initial conception of the book still the same? Or in doing the research and and all the interviews that you've conducted, has it changed a great deal from your initial conception? Look, the basic picture of it is still basically the same, yeah, it is. You go down particular avenues that surprise you. There is a particular avenue that I ended up going down. By the end of that particular avenue, I was talking to my editor and I was there going... Is this something that we need to talk to the police about? Because by the end of the avenue, yeah, we we were looking at things that, you know, I was very surprised about. This is literally criminal behaviour. When you discover something like that, that can't help sort of knock the book a little... Look, it definitely wobbles the book off its axis a little bit. And you're there going, okay, so... what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> what are we going to do here? It's not something that I've ever, you know, had to worry about before. Nothing about any of the main players that, you know, people would know the names of immediately. It did make me take a step back, shall we say. Because you're just there going, I can't just blithely put this in the book and then sort of publish and be damned. That's just not something you can do, I don't think. Yeah, it was serious enough that I was like, okay, that's um, that's pretty serious. So, yeah. That was that was a surprise. Also, you know, my assumption about, as we sort of addressed a little bit, I didn't think the story would be still rumbling on in 2018 when I first heard about all this in late 2012. I know a lot more about Phil Morris himself. I remember he was this sort of mysterious sphinx-like person who never said anything at all on social media at the start of all of this i think the only thing he had ever said on twitter was hey joe uh and we weren't quite sure whether that was his wife or not at the time since then he certainly said a lot more the veil has certainly been uh, lifted on phil a lot more we know a lot more about him now um, so from what you're saying, I, I take, and I'm sure people are interested in this, I take that the tone that you're taking with the book is not a salacious tabloid-style expose, but a pretty, <laughs> no. a pretty sober examination of all the elements that make up the story. My attitude towards the book, it has to be fair. And it has to be compassionate. I'm not. I mean, it's interesting. I'm reading, I'm reading a book about uh, about Orson Welles at the moment. It's by Simon Callow, and like you can tell through all of it, even though Wells is quite often 
not a very pleasant guy. You can tell that all the way through Simon Callow loves Wells, admires his work, all that sort of thing. You know, he's compassionate about the guy. And he couldn't write three volumes about uh, about Orson Wells, you know, if he wasn't. And that's basically my attitude as well. I'm not interested in writing a whole book about all this sort of stuff if I didn't have roughly the same kind of attitude. I mean, I'm not... Uh, blind to the faults of the various people who've been involved in this saga, God knows. But I'm like I was writing the chapter about about Phil when he was kidnapped, and I was I was still struck by you know the astonishing thing that he did just rebuilding his life after that. You know, a lot of people just you would never hear from them ever again, at all. Um, let alone you know, somebody going back to the place that they were kidnapped again to do a remarkable thing like finding, you know, lost telly. That's still something that I keep going back to. So, yeah, that that hasn't changed at all. Now, before we started uh, recording, uh, we were talking about uh, the previous interview we had with you at, at your at your place, and there was I think there were some things at the time that you weren't able to address. <laughs> like... Uh, Oh, well, we won't go into that, you know, the, the typical power question. But, I mean, are there some things that you couldn't address then that you feel able to talk about now? I mean, look, I can address them. I don't know whether I can, like, I can tell you the, uh, who was patient zero. I said I'd get back to you. Uh, look, I know who that was now. I mean, it's, you're probably going to be terribly disappointed. I'll tell you in the book, but I know who patient zero was now in terms of spreading the Omni rumor. Has anyone warned me off? Uh, last time I said no. Um, this time I can tell you yes. I was also listening back. I was amused to hear that the date of Enemy and Webb's discovery was terribly opaque back then, and uh, it's still kind of opaque now, um, which says an awful lot, I think, about the sort of cloak and dagger bullshit that we're still kind of enduring. I mean, I've now got a pretty good idea. I mean, when I say pretty good, a very good idea but um of when and you know where it was found so yeah i mean that's the thing uh it's amazing what a couple of years and a lot of research will do to sort of dig all this sort of stuff out and you know people telling you stuff and you know i think last time i was reading a lot of books and i have um you also said has anything you've uncovered contradicted the official story i think back then i said no uh this time i've changed my mind having said that phil's done a pretty good job of contradicting himself i mean me sort of saying (laughs) anything i've uncovered contradicting it is not exactly front page news but i have uncovered stuff we also talked a lot about fandom last time and it was interesting watching the fallout from our last interview because that obviously (laughs) fans don't like it when you talk about them (laughs) (laughs) funnily enough um and it it was interesting watching people go oh it's a book all about the forums and you know oh don't you dare quote me you bastard yeah and that obviously distorted people's view about what the book is about i mean you know we talked about all kinds of stuff but people's like oh it's going to be a book of forum quotes and i was like no it's not where did i say it was going to be a book all about forum quotes yeah i mean look it is yeah it's a key part of the book but it's not the focus but you know it's worth reiterating that yeah that the pitch for the book was that it's about phil morris and his impact upon a subculture but people sort of blew right past the it's about phil morris and focused in on the impact upon the subculture 
I mean, the other thing that was sort of interesting about that interview was how much, you know, now Phil has changed. He's changed enormously. I mean, we sort of talked just before now about, you know, how he he barely tweeted at all in 2013. And now he he goes on television now. He does convention appearances now. I mean, he, he didn't do any up until a couple of years ago. And now, you know, the sort of Kremlinology that sort of surrounds everything that he does, it's sort of gone up amazing amount of notches. And each time there's this sort of expectation or this hope that he'll finally sort of give us the next batch of stuff or that he'll tell the next chapter of the story. One of the interesting things for me is that, A, it never happens, but B, is sort of watching the way he's sort of changed from the guy, you know, who first posted back in 2005. I mean, I've talked to people and they've said, no, I don't think Phil's actually changed at all. I spoke to Dick Fiddy about it and he said, no, he's not changed at all since, you know, he's the guy who gave him, you know, the the BFI's sort of uh, imprimatur to go overseas. And I'm like, really? So after 10 years of travelling all over the world and looking for lost television, you don't think he's changed? like, no, I don't think so. But I don't think that's really arguable. I can't see how it wouldn't do. You know, you go from being, I mean, no offence to Phil, somebody who's literally a nobody in fandom to somebody who's having his picture taken next to his childhood hero in Tom Baker. You know, he's being fated at the Excel. He's being, you know, literally clasped to the bosom of, you know, everybody in Cardiff is, you know, lionising him and all that sort of thing, you know, it would have to change you in good ways and bad. So do you think him putting himself out there more frequently and on wider forums is him just, uh, well, you know, I want to be out there, I want to speak to the fans more directly, or is it more sort of image management um, than that? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, look, the thing is, one of the things that does irritate me is, like, I think I saw him tweeting about something. I can't even remember what the subject was, and somebody says, just give us the episodes back, Phil, that's your only function. And I thought, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he's not a human being at all. He's literally a dispensing machine for missing episodes. Uh, Phil has his faults, he certainly does, but, I mean, that's just terrible. I mean, and look, many people have sort of said that Phil's a lot more impressive in person than he is on social media. Yeah, I don't think that's really terribly arguable either. There are things about him that will become clear, actually, in the book that, yeah, I think would actually change people's opinion of him um, to some degree. Um, I think that they're for good and bad. It does irritate me that, you know, he can't, and look, this is partly his own fault, but still, I think it's it's regrettable that he can't go on social media to a large degree without being hassled. And, I mean, I empathise about that to some degree because, uh, you know, whenever I sort of pop up on various missing episode threads, like I might just comment on something and people go, so when's your book coming out? And you're like, bloody hell. <laughs> you're just there going, I'm not just a dispenser of chasing shadows yeah i can understand where phil's coming from and you know i haven't gone on some mad rant about you know stephen moffat and you know the need for more female writers or something like that so i mean look he's entitled to his own opinions on that but i can also see why some people are like no no we don't care what you think about stephen moffat give us power of the daleks (laughs) 
So, yeah, it's um, damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, really. Just tangentially to that, do you think his motivations have changed since this whole thing began? I mean, yes. Yeah, I don't have any doubt. So he's gone from being a person uh, looking for missing episodes in in, in far-flung corners of the world to to what? Read the book. There you go, people. Read the book. book. (laughs) It's a good story, but it's it's a long story. Now, you mentioned the book. Just in terms, I'm always interested in, in um, how a writer goes about their craft. What for you have been the most you know, frustrating aspects of, of, of the research and the writing? And on the flip side to that, what's been the most rewarding aspect uh, or aspects of, of writing this book? So like a lot of the story is very opaque. You know, a lot of people, a lot of the key players aren't talking openly. So piecing together what the story is, hasn't been easy, but I think I've managed it, which makes me happy. But, yeah, as I say, it's not been easy. So sort of doing that and, you know, making sure that your facts are correct and putting in the the research hard yards, that's been very challenging because just, you know, somebody might tell you, you know, a fact, like, you know, this particular thing happened, for instance. And once upon a time, and like Doctor Who fans used to do this all the time, it would be like, you know, if a particular actor said, oh, a director did this on the day. And we used to sort of accept that that used to be the case. And then we would discover that, you know, the vagaries of memory or what have you meant that we couldn't actually take that for granted, you know, that we'd we'd have to get more than one confirmation or paperwork or that sort of thing and then you discover that you know the paperwork isn't necessarily correct either so just making sure firming up the facts of the case uh has been very challenging i mean that sort of thing i was alluding to before the the criminal behavior that you uncover you're just there going wow hang on this is this is a bit of a worry um you certainly don't want to put something like that in a book without getting your facts straight so yeah that was that was also obviously very challenging actually i should probably make it very clear nothing that i've discovered about uh i mean i'm not alluding to phil with any of that criminal behavior stuff because people will say oh he's talking about phil because you know the book's in large part about him but no i'm not talking about phil there so yeah that was one of the key things and like the thing about journalism like when i write my screenplays or my short stories or what have you. You can just make it up, Rob. Oh, it's terrific. If <laughs> the character just wants to go to Tibet, he can. Hurrah! But when it's journalism-like, you can't just do that. You have to back it up. You have a duty to the facts. Yeah, yeah. And look, it's, I mean, to sort of bring it back to Simon Keller, I know he did a, uh, <laughs> he was researching a book on Charles Lawton, uh, Charles Lawton famously apparently uh, forgot his lines uh, at a you know during a theatre run. Simon Callow interviewed at least four actors who were on stage while Charles Lawton had forgot his lines. They all told that occasion like they all remembered that completely differently. And at the end of it, Simon Callow, he was always, "What price history? If everybody remembers it differently." how on earth can I reconstruct this afterwards? And, you know, obviously the answer is it's bloody difficult. But at the end of it, you just have to sort of present it to the reader and say, you figure it out. But it doesn't mean you can't write. Is that an approach that you've had to take with some regards to this book? Just laying out, you know, perhaps both sides of the evidence and saying to the the reader, well, here is what I've uncovered. 
it's difficult to disentangle the truth from the claims. I'll leave it up to you to decide. I remember telling you that Marco Polo was going to be like that, didn't I? I can't think of any examples like that off the top of my head. But yeah, now that I've said that, I'm sure it's going to come back and it will happen. Look, there are so many hotly contested sort of things in the subculture of missing episodes that yeah, there's bound to be something contentious like that come up. Now, you mentioned before that you'd spoken with Phil, and I think that was something that hadn't occurred when we'd last uh, interviewed you. And people, you know, as you said before, people were, were claiming that your book was simply going to be a, a copy and paste from various forums. <laughs> you, you've, you have reached out. I mean, in, in conversations I've had with you in the past, you have reached out and basically you've spoken with, if not all of them, then most of the main players in this in this saga. Is that correct? Uh, most, yeah. How forthcoming have you found them? Uh, some of them not at all. Some of them uh, have cooperated a little bit and then stopped, as I think I said last time, as is their right. I mean, nobody has to talk to you. And, I mean, look, I was – one of my idols is Errol Morris, the documentarian, and he sort of – he said a thing recently. He said, the thing is about sources, the people who talk to you, they all have an agenda. You just have to be aware uh, as, a, as a journalist that you have to be aware of that agenda when they talk to you. I mean, you know, they'll say, look, I'm telling you the truth. And you'll be like, right, yep, okay. And as I said, you've then got to go away and talk to somebody else and go, okay, so what do you say about this? And gradually, hopefully, triangulate what the truth is. Errol Morris doesn't have any truck with this postmodern idea that, you know, there is no truth. He says, no, it's out there and we can find it. We just have to talk to enough people or get enough video footage or what have you. So, yeah, I have tried to talk to as many people as possible, tried to have an open mind, you know, to people who I'd previously not had a very high opinion of, frankly. People surprise you uh, in good and bad ways. That's the thing. Everybody's got their agenda. Everybody's got their own story. I'm quite happy to listen and to ask questions. And like I say, I could be wrong about all of this. And I have been wrong about all kinds of things all the way through this. And I'm not interested in being wrong in print. I'm interested, I'm very interested in being wrong during the research phase and going, all right, well, if I got that wrong, how can we, how can we get to the truth? Look, if people won't talk to me, I mean, it's always interesting when they won't because I think that also speaks volumes in some ways, because you're like, okay, you don't have to, but why aren't you? You know, we're only talking about old telly here. So, but you know, like I said, they don't have to. And speaking of getting to the truth, the Omni rumor, let's let's just briefly touch on the Omni rumor. Uh, the Omni rumor was a wild combination of wish fulfillment wrapped around a kernel <laughs> of hope. Um, <laughs> after your research, as a percentage, which is a bit of a, a, a you know a, a basic way of you know presenting it, but after your research as a percentage, how much of the Omni rumor do you think is true, and and what, uh, if any, are a couple of the biggest myths you've debunked to your satisfaction, if you if you can say nothing massively springs to mind that's been you know super debunked. I mean, there's there's people who will sort of say like they'll attack various sort of strands of the Omni rumor, like they'll go, oh, you know. There were 11 copies of Marco Polo or, you know, there was a screening of Power of the Daleks or this, that and the other. But when you sort of tunnel back to, like, the kernel, like you say, you're there going, okay, I can find a kernel of truth behind that story. Like, somebody somewhere had good reason 
to believe that story. So do I think that, you know, somebody somewhere had good reason? Like, you know, it's not just somebody maliciously sprinkling bullshit into the, you know, the fan propeller system. So, like, there's there's a difference between that and, I mean, you know, so you can sort of wave your hand at it and go, oh, you know, it's all bullshit. Um, and I've seen some people, you know, they're not terribly good critical thinkers. Like, they just hear a rumour and they just sort of say, no, it's crap. And, you know, if you do your research, like, there was that mirror story that said, you know, oh, they found 100 stories in Ethiopia, which looked like it was a lot of crap on its face. But if you dig into that story, there's a pretty good chance Phil found a considerable number of episodes in Ethiopia. I mean, that's the thing, like trying to definitively say, you know, what was crap and what wasn't. It's, um, it's very hard to, to put a fork in all of it or all of those rumours until he sort of reveals his hand. Like I was talking to someone once and I said, here's the problem. Pretty much everybody who we would sort of take their word with any authority in this story they've all lied or misled us and you know i'm not particularly here to judge why they lied or misled us i mean i know why they did it in some cases and i can basically approve and sometimes i think they did it maliciously but it does mean it's a problem when you're sort of then trying to assess what they say in future or at any time really because you're just they're going well how can you trust them really i mean there are ways of sort of trying to figure out whether somebody's telling the truth it's like well do they have a good reason to lie at this particular point um who are they talking to yeah but it's it's that kind of thing you know i've got to the point now rob where i'm like unless i see video footage i'm not really that interested that's sort of my attitude towards this whole thing now i mean you can present evidence and you can and you can assemble a good story but yeah unless there's video evidence that's pretty much the only thing that you can really be sure of i find it remarkable that no video if, if we assume that Phil has found stuff, that no video yes. has, has escaped into the wild, do you, do you think that's remarkable or do you, do you think that there's perfectly valid reasons for why that hasn't? Because previously the BBC archives leaked like the proverbial sieve during the 80s and 90s. I mean, there were missing episodes apparently returned. Within a week or two, there was copies floating around fandom. But uh, <laughs> we, we, we have yeah. a different story today. Yes. Look, I actually think a large chunk of stuff has actually leaked. And we know about this. It's It's been talked about openly on Gallifrey Base. It's that massive hard drive's worth of stuff. I mean, you're just talking about Doctor Who. Again, I know of at least a couple of uh, little shards of stuff that I that I actually genuinely believe is out there and has been seen by a couple of eyewitnesses that I've talked to for the book. And by the end of the conversation, I was like, okay, call me crazy, I believe you. And it also matched up with other eyewitness reports. I mean, we talked about this last time that I was able to conduct. So, but having said that, I mean, the difference between the BBC in the 80s and Tia in the noughties and the teenies is um, BBC is a public institution staffed by fans. Tia is a private institution staffed by a fan. Now, speaking of Phil, because we always circle back to Phil, I think it's widely known that Phil uh, was armed with written authorization from the BBC and the BFI, uh, representing ITV, the ITV stations, to act mm-hmm. on their behalf, to go around the world and act on their behalf, flourish this bit, these bits of paper and say, I'm working on their behalf. In terms of missing episodes, searching for missing episodes of, of all stripes, you know, don't worry about Doctor Who, but you know everything else. I think it was a wise decision at that time to put for those organisations to put all their eggs in one basket. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, it makes for a speedier 
uh, search. You've only got one person. There's no sort of bureaucracy lagging behind. Are there any negatives to that that you could possibly see? Look, to be honest, and Dick Fitty did actually say this, there weren't a lot of volunteers coming forward, Rob. And that's not to, you know, throw any shade on Phil. Uh, as I say, what he did was remarkable. But, you know, in terms of the BFI and, you know, the BBC, and when we say the BBC, I mean, I don't know how high up the BBC tree we're talking about, sort of. I don't think it was the Board of Governors all getting together and saying, are we going to give, you know, this fella our imprimatur? I think it was a lot further down the tree than that. In fact, I'm sure of it. The BFI were there going, we have a very short list of who's volunteering to go over to Nigeria and Sierra Leone and, you know, dangerous places to volunteer with his own money to look for missing television. The list is one. It's Phil. Sure, we'll give him a letter. And to be completely honest with you, I don't think the letter actually helped at all. I mean, they gave it to him in the hope that it would help, but I'm fairly sure it was... Uh, the formation of TIA that actually really was what opened doors. So when people are sort of going, you know, and occasionally they do attack him and say, oh, you know, he's doing it under the the aegis of the BFI or the BBC and, you know, how dare he? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I don't think that, you know, it's not like he's their employee or anything like that. I don't think he even pretends that he's anything much to do with them. I think we're all fascinated over the Christmas New Year break when uh, Charles Norton, who worked on The Power of the Daleks and the Shader animation, released a a three-part blog posting about the efforts to claim uh, or lift off the very, very badly vinegar syndrome damaged uh, Morecambe and Wise episode uh, about how he talked about the research that went into that and the, and the sort of the, the efforts that, that went into that. Dave, did you read that, that article and, and, and what did you make of it? I did. I thought Charles deserves all the kudos in the world. Just when you're reading something like that, you can't. It was a little bit like when I was talking to Derek Handley, actually, like when you're aware of the amount of painstaking work that goes into recreating lost art like that. It's staggering, really, because you're aware that only a certain amount of people in the world are going to appreciate it, and yet someone somewhere has decided that they're going to do it anyway. You know, just some of the science was a little bit over my head, but you're still there going, and like I even saw that, you know, Paul Venezes was there going, mm, you know, the images we've recovered, they weren't all that great. And you're there going, yeah, but not the point, really. The fact that they've made the attempt and the, the science that they've probably uncovered all, along the way, it's beautiful just, just in the achievement, really. It's a little bit like, you know, sailing around the world, you know, you might have lost some men along the way and what have you, but the achievement is worth it. And I mean, some people are there going, doesn't Phil have another copy of this and you're there going look maybe he does and maybe he doesn't but this won't be the only damaged copy of you know what is a priceless film and the next time something comes along where you know we definitely don't have another copy and we want to see those you know precious fragments of something that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see we'll be able to use this process again and that's so worth it i've never watched a single second of Morecambe and wise it doesn't matter doesn't matter one iota. It's it's a beautiful thing. You know, when they're striving to actually create something, to preserve something, to to make something from nothing. Like, you know, everybody had given up on that. You know, I certainly had. I was just like, I mean, I thought, oh, well, if he's got another copy, he's got another copy. 
and you would also be thinking, well, you know, they'd taken it out of the archive because they're going, it was infecting the other films. We don't want to affect the rest of the films in our archive, but they're like, no, no, we can actually try this other thing. It was worth doing in the same way that it was worth going to Nigeria, like Ian Levine telexed everywhere. Bless him. You know, he got us back that stuff in the 80s. Without him, you know, I mean, I've been watching Kaleidoscope as well. I would never have really discovered Kaleidoscope's work if I hadn't been without the mission creep from this book. Uh, I would never have discovered the work of American, you know, film collectors. You know, I got fascinated with their stuff. You know, you know, there's a guy who's made it his life's work to basically restore, you know, the film version of Day of the Triffids. Not a film that is ever going to trouble, you know, sight and sounds, <laughs> you know, <laughs> list of great films. But he loves it. And he's just made it his life's work to to make sure that the best possible version of that is assembled. And, you know, there's something noble about that because, you know, we're Doctor Who fans. We're used to being mocked for, you know, for liking a shitty old show. There's always going to be a great copy of Citizen Kane available. It's just possible that Chris Perry sort of talks about a midden. You discover things about society when you look at like the equivalent of a midden, you know, where people sort of leave their rubbish behind. I mean, that's the thing. We we know that when you leave it up to, you know, poncy people to sort of pick the television and the films to sort of represent society, you end up with the coronation and you end up with Shakespeare and stuff that people don't watch. But when you want to know what people actually did watch, that's the stuff they wiped. And that's the stuff that in 50 years they're like, geez, I'd really like to watch that again. But nobody's really all that fussed about all of the Ponzi stuff. I admire what Kaleidoscope does. I think it's kind of quixotic in a way, uh, how they're sort of trying to save every last ident. I mean, you're just there going, is anyone ever really going to want to watch that ident again? But look, some people do. And that's the thing. I mean, look, like I said, never watched Morecambe and Wise before, but it's... It is beautiful watching someone trying to bring that back from the dead. And the same way for Day of the Triffids, because, you know, for them, that's their Doctor Who. And in the same way how, you know, Phil found that football match for Ghana, that's their 10th Planet 4. That's the sort of noble thing about what's going on here. That's the thing that, you know, that's why it's worth chasing the shadows, if you will, Rob. Nice callback there, Dave. It's almost like I've been writing this book for a bloody long time. <laughs> you mentioned Chris Perry and Cal. Let's venture slightly into some controversial territory. <laughs> what controversy could you possibly be alluding to, Rob? In say the last six to 12 months, Cal has garnered a very good reputation for going out there, finding episodes, finding stuff. Now, as you say, some of it might be as trivial as a BBC ident from 1982. They found episodes of The Avengers. They've actually found it, located it, got the got the approval and announced it. That works wonders, I think. It's it's a great tonic for fans of those shows to be able to see them in a relatively speedy way. Yeah. Um, now, I, this is a, a roundabout, very roundabout way of me saying, are we able to compare the approach of Cal to perhaps a fellow named Phil Morrison Wigan, or am I being really unfair? Can we believe that Phil has found more? I'm going to go out on a limb here, Rob. Uh, there's no question that Phil has found more. Can we compare him to Kaleidoscope? Look, you wouldn't be the first. Um, I think it's fair to say that he doesn't appreciate those comparisons. Whether or not they're actually fair, look, I don't know. 
kaleidoscope different to film and you know the attacks on chris perry i'm i've found them very disappointing because i think they're fairly transparent like you i applaud what they've been doing you know and i don't think anybody would have said any different like if they want to say hey we've got a softly softly episode we bought it from a collector off ebay or however we happen to acquire it and if you want to come along to one of our many events you can see it too that's how they've decided to approach missing episodes they announce what they've got and then you can come along and watch it now phil morris doesn't have to do that he can be like any other private collector he can have traveled the world discovered power of the daleks part six he could have discovered and he can sit on it and be well within his rights if he wants to he doesn't have to be transparent about it he doesn't have to show it to anyone. But a lot of people think that he should. And it's obviously getting to him. Now, we don't know why Phil's not telling us what he has. There have been umpteen different theories as to why that is. I wouldn't like to venture my own particular pet theory as to what it is on the air. Basically, like I said, Rob, I had a very bad year in 2017. And one of the things that I came out of it with was that it's nice to be kind to people and watching other people be unkind to people has been incredibly disappointing. No one would give a toss about, you know, Kaleidoscope releasing Christmas Eye Dance of 1973 if Phil released Marco Polo. <laughs> no one would care. You know, if you released, you know, jukebox jury episodes with the Beatles on them, that would be, my brother would hear about that and he doesn't give a shit about Dr. Who. If you believe, you know, the mildest version of the Omni-Rumi, he's clearly got them outgunned. So why is he being unkind? Why is he, you know, stabbing them in the back rather than sort of, you know, just taking the high road and just sort of completely taking all the oxygen out of the room by, you know, just outgunning them? It's baffling. Is this something that you address in your book? To some degree, because, I mean, look, when you're writing about somebody like Phil, when you're penning a portrait of the guy, you're just there going, so why are you behaving like this? I mean, look, you can't write about the best of Phil without occasionally talking about the worst of Phil. There have been times when he's behaved terribly, terribly disappointingly. And I'm not just saying he hasn't given me a Doctor Who DVD. I could care less about that. But when you're watching people being unkind, that's the worst, I think. It's been one of the worst things about the whole saga, really, is the unkindness that has sort of been... I don't know about the hallmark, because there's been a lot of really... Like, some of the best stuff about this, Rob, has been, you know, the friends I've made. I'm not going to get too mushy on you, because, you know, I've got to know you throughout this, so I can't... You know, this is on Skype, so I can't come over there and give you a big kiss. But, you know, I have made a lot of friends in Melbourne who I otherwise wouldn't have throughout this saga and you know friends overseas as well and even a lot of the people just through interviewing them that i've become friends with that's been you know a great boon to me that i wouldn't have had without this book you can't write a story about missing episodes without noticing that a lot of times it makes people behave in a very unkind manner and that is uh that is very disappointing Now, obviously, the Omni Rumor focuses for the large part on Doctor Who. Have, I suppose, your investigations into all this uncovered whether Phil has perhaps found shining gems from other well-known TV shows that uh, suffer in the archives? Has he found stuff from other shows? The oft-repeated uh, ones are perhaps, you know, Callan, Out of the Unknown, uh, you know, stuff like that. Those two shows that you just named there, I mean, I don't know for a fact I mean, I haven't seen any video 
<laughs> of either of those. But, yeah, eyewitnesses have seen footage of other stuff, which is the next best thing of other shows. Which I suppose, given the, the extent of his search, I suppose would make sense that he wouldn't simply just be finding Doctor Who, he would be finding yeah. other TV yeah. programs. Look, there are people who will claim that Phil has nothing. I mean, look, frankly, it's just an untenable argument, to be honest. Or they say, oh, look, he got lucky with, you know, the ones that he had. Dave, what do you think that it's untenable that he's found nothing? People will be saying, listening to this, that mm. it's easy for you to make an assertion. Why do you think it's untenable that he couldn't have found anything? Because I'm not just looking at it with my Doctor Who blinders on with respect to these people. And, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I have actually gone out. I'm like, are Dad's Army fans, are Beatles fans, are they all obsessing over their own version of the Omniroom? And the answer is no, not at all, which is one of the interesting things about the story, to be honest, because, I mean, I would have thought Beatles fans are just as big a lunatics as we are, I would have thought. And you would think that some version of the Omni Rumor, you would think that would take hold. But it hasn't. Or if it has, I can't find much trace of it. There are traces of it, just not there's not very much, which is interesting. Like I say, people I know, people I trust have actually seen some stuff. So, I mean, look, that obviously helps when you're saying, yes, I know that, you know, some of the things that Phil's had. But, I mean, you're just there going, look... Leave Doctor Who aside, you know, take those blinders off. He's gone all over the place. Like I was, you know, one of those annoying circular arguments on Mondas where people are going, is there any proof that he's actually been to these places? I'm like, put a photo of himself up online in Sierra Leone, you blockheaded amnesiac. I mean, that's one of the more frustrating things about the saga is that people just forget things big chunks of evidence just disappear into the ether you, you were alluding to backwards with uh, was it simon callow where you know he speaks to four different people and they give you four <laughs> different versions of the events it's, it's a similar with this particular yeah. saga so long that people have their own interpretation of what they've seen on the screen or black and you know what people have posted on forums yeah i mean look that was the thing where you just they're going look phil he did go overseas all right he, he did go to nigeria and he did go to Sierra Leone. I guess if you want to, again, be a solipsist and, you know, only believe the things that you've seen, can you doubt some of the things that Phil has told us? Yes, you can, actually. But there are some things, like that photo of him outside the SLBC, that, yeah, that's true. Of course it's true. And you're not actually adding to the sum of the total human knowledge with your ridiculous sort of armchair scepticism like oh but can we be sure yes we can actually and if you'd done a scintilla of research you wouldn't need to ask that sort of dumb question bearing in mind that thoroughness and you know casting that wide of a net that's the thing that's going to turn up a bunch of stuff now what he's actually doing with it why is it taking so long all of these those are open questions but I mean, yeah, I long since passed the point of it's not the interesting question, I don't think, of, you know, has he got anything? And even to some extent, what has he got? I don't think that's the interesting question either. The interesting question is why can't he deliver? And I'll have a little stab at answering that too. And you'll see that when you hopefully 
Red Chasing Shadows coming soon. Yeah, look, in terms of debunks, like it's interesting, like just little episodes sort of pop up and sometimes you get, like in Australia, it's not all that often that you get a chance to sort of exercise a bit of shoe leather, but this time I actually did. There was a story that uh, an episode of The Wheel in Space was supposedly kicking around like a private collector had it in Sydney. And I talked to the guy who was talking about it, like who'd sort of released the rumour into the wild online. I said, so where where's this actually coming from? And he actually told me who told him. And I was like, look, uh, that doesn't sound terribly likely. It basically emanated from a, 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 it was a Doctor Who store in Sydney. And I, I happen to be up in Sydney for other reasons. And I'm like, all right, I've got nothing to do on this particular day. I'm going to go out there and have a chat to them. I did. I just went out there and said, so what's going on with this story? Is there actually a collector? And like, they're a little bit cagey about it. But in the end, it was interesting because, like, again, you watch sort of people online. And, like, this is the thing about Doctor Who fandom. And, like, I've been researching this. Like, this has been going on. Almost since the early 80s, like, we've, we're covered in scar tissue about hoaxes. So whenever anything sort of pops up, and like, there's a stampede of people just yelling, hoax, you know, because they do not want to believe that it's possibly true. It's like, look, it probably isn't true, but we lose nothing by investigating and finding out what the actual story is. Because, yeah, look, it's probably some wanker who's just getting his jollies. But what do we lose by investigating? Nothing. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll, you know, so I have the money on a train ticket. So I went out, I had a chat to the guy and he said, yeah, this collector, he literally died and he left some old films behind and his daughter didn't know anything about Doctor Who at all and she just wandered into the store and she just sort of said, I have these old films. Now, as it turned out, by some weird chance, they were extant episodes of The Wheel in Space. And I was like, you know, you end up talking to these people and, like, they were quite excited about it because, like, they they were actually fans. But while you were talking to them and went, while you were sort of slowly getting to the bottom of what turned out to be a disappointing story because it wasn't one of the missing ones, you were just there going, so there's no actual hoaxer at the bottom of this it's just a series of misunderstanding like i remember thinking about on my ride on the train back thinking there's a whole bunch of sydney fans here who post on the boards who are just like ah you know it's all bullshit ah it's clearly the work of a hoaxer ah and you're like you guys actually live here they said where the shop was but none of them had actually bothered to go out and ask or just ring on the phone. And I was like, okay. So it's taken me coming all the way up from Melbourne, just exercising a little bit of, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm writing a book about it, so I guess I'm a bit more invested, a bit more obsessed. But it did sort of strike me that if you just, I don't know, I guess assume a little bit more that it's cock-up rather than conspiracy, if you know what I mean, that, yeah, you'll probably get further to understanding what's going on throughout all of this and that you know most of this can be pretty much explained in that sense yeah i do know that there are people who have been doing that and you know have been deliberately feeding bullshit into the rumor water table and i know that there have been people who have been as i've alluded to before literally committing crimes but yeah 
doesn't hurt to occasionally wear out your own shoe leather and just sort of get to the bottom of something rather than just sort of sitting in your armchair and waving your cane at people and sort of going, yeah, hoaxes, hoaxes, and just sort of you're not enhancing anybody's understanding by doing that. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I think we'll leave it there, Dave. Um, I hope everyone has found this as fascinating as I have. Uh, thank you very much for for being as open as you, as you can. Uh, I suppose it's a tricky balancing. It's a tricky balancing thing where you've got a book that you've poured your, your heart and soul in for for you know a few a couple of years. You don't want to give the game away immediately, but it sounds like just listening to you that there will be it'll be a a fascinating story, and uh, I think it will address. It sounds like it'll address uh, you know many many of the of the main points of of this whole saga. Would that be right? Yeah. Look, <laughs> having worked on it this long, Rob, I can confidently say there won't be too many stones left unturned. That's for sure. So look. For people who are looking for answers, I'll do my best to give them to That's for sure. I mean, look, the other thing is <laughs> I was listening to uh, John Dean, the guy who was uh, Nixon's lawyer today, and my mantra throughout all of this is that this is not Watergate. It's not Watergate, but uh, I do sort of recognise that obsessive thing that um, Woodward and Bernstein got into, that sort of thing where you've just got to keep sort of pulling the string and pulling the string until eventually the whole thing unravels. So, yeah, all the president's men, or in my case, one man. Just following it until I finally get to the bottom of it. And on that note, uh, we'll leave it there, Dave. Dave, of course, is writing Chasing Shadows, uh, coming from Obverse Books in the future. Dave, thank you very much for coming on, and obviously uh, good luck with the book, with the rest of the writing, and we certainly uh, will be keeping a keen eye out for it for when it comes out. Dave, thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. So there you have it, our interview with uh, Dave Hoskin. Um, I uh, assume, Mark, that uh, once the book does come out, we may break our... Our, uh, our embargo, our long, long embargo, and, and try and uh, get Dave on again for another interview uh, once the uh, book has been released and the, and the fur has begun to fly, no doubt. Absolutely. We will break our uh, sabbatical and uh, get that to you. Don't worry, we will. Just with regards to our departure, as H.P. Lovecraft once, <laughs> once wrote, that which is not dead can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. So basically, we may come back. <laughs> Um, Mark, what did you think of the interview before we move on to more uh, other topics? Lots of interesting uh, insights there. Can't wait to get my hands on the book. Looking forward to having some of those uh, mysteries solved and rumours debunked. Okay. Now, Mark, um, as we uh, have alluded to over the last three or four months, we're shuffling off this podcasting mortal coil and leaving in February. What do we have planned for for our last episode? Stuff. Stuff. We've got a few things planned. We've received a few letters from people saying um, goodbye and things like that. So if you've got anything you want to say to us that you've been hanging off from saying to us, tell us what you really think of us. Uh, send them through to uh, 42 to doomsday at gmail.com or our Twitter account or our uh, Facebook page. We'll, uh, we'd love to hear from you before we go. And we'll probably give some insights into uh, what we've learned from podcasting over the last four and a half years. Has it been four and a half years, Mark? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I was yeah. a whippersnapper when we started. I think we're both young and enthusiastic when we started, Rob. So that's our January episode, folks. Stay tuned for our very, very, well, basically final episode in February, unless something really remarkable happens, in which case, no doubt... We'll uh, keep going. We'll push it into March. (laughs) 
My God, Mark, we're never going to leave, are we? No, it'll just be like, oh, hold on, another thing, another thing. Well, something will happen over the next couple of weeks after our last episode, which will upset us, and, and we'll think, if only there was an outlet that we could express our views. Oh, hold on. <laughs> exactly. 42 to Doomsday, the regular series will stop, but the 42 to Doomsday specials will commence. 42 to Doomsday after dark, I'm hoping, hoping Mark. Apparently, yes. <laughs> All right, so everyone, thank you very much once again for listening. I've been Rob. And I've been Mark, and look forward to speaking to you in February. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.